Psalm 146, this is God's word, go beautiful and true. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes and human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground, and on that very day their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever, your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, that in it you show us who you are and what you're about, and thus you show us who we are in you. It says, we attend to the riches of your word, moved by your spirit to show us the glory of you, our God, to show us Jesus and transform our hearts to be more like him. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Sometimes I wish that God would just tell me plain as day what, what to do. And I don't mean in the big ways. You know, we, we get, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, that's very clear. I love my neighbor as ourself and work out what that means. But I mean in the very detailed specifics of my life. Like I, if I had a manual or something that was like, Eat here for lunch today. I wouldn't have to think about it. It would be great. Or maybe even bigger things. I remember being a teenager and um, obsessed with that question. What is God's will for my life? Where should, should I go to college? If I go to college, where should I go to college? I met Angela at 17. Should I marry Angela? And it would have been great if it, it was like written out in the stars in the night sky, like go to Campbell University or something like that. That would be great. I, I, <laughs> I want details. But that's never happened. Not once in my life have I gotten a clear direction, I don't feel like, um, in that very specific way. And in the, that's true for most of us. But most of the time we don't get, go to this place, take this job. There are so many situations in our day-to-day -day life that are not addressed directly in Scripture and most of the time, if we're looking for signs around us, we're going to be looking in vain. And why is that? I wonder why. Because it would be really great and much easier on us, I think, if we did have that. And the reason why, I think, is that God is not just interested in us doing the right things. He's not treating us like robots. It's not like there's a switch inside of us that he flips and then we automatically go and do exactly what he wants us to do. That's not how it works. I think God interacts with us meaningfully. He doesn't just flip a switch. He interacts with our hearts. Because he's not just interested in us doing the right things. He's interested in all of who we are. And so his guidance often looks like Psalm 146, which we just read. Not a detailed list or an instruction manual on the next thing to do, but a reorientation of our hearts and our minds and our affections at the deepest level to reform us not only to do what is right, but to love what is right. Um, 
not just to capture us as individuals that can do his bidding as pawns on a chessboard or whatever, but to engage with us as people meaningfully. So what I want to do is look at this psalm together in light of that question, what should I do? What should I do with my life? So let's look at this psalm together, and I'm going to break it up into a couple of different sections like I always do. And the first one's this. It starts and ends with God. The question of what I should do, who am I, starts and ends with God. Notice how this psalm, even in the way it's structured, reorients us. It begins and ends with the same sentence, praise the Lord. That's literally in Hebrew, hallelujah. It begins with hallelujah, it ends with hallelujah. Because the thing that anchors us when we ask these questions about what to do with our life is God. What I mean by that is it is impossible for us to meaningfully answer the question, who am I and how should I live, without answering the question first, who is God and what does he value? After all, he's our creator and we're made in his image in the words of scripture, meant to reflect him to one another in this world. So I ask, looking at Psalm 146, who is God? Who is God? Look at what it says about him. In verses 1 and 2, it says he's worthy of praise. So praise the Lord. Why praise him? He's worthy of being praised. He's glorious. He's beautiful. He's true. He's good. Verse 3, it speaks about not putting your trust in princes. Or um, in our terms, don't put your trust in political leaders. Why? Because they can't save. And that means the inverse is true that God can save. So he's worthy of praise. He can offer salvation. Verse 4, unlike the princes of this world, God lives forever. He's eternal. And because he lives forever, his purposes do not pass away. So we can put our hope in him. Verse 6, he's the maker of all things. And then verses 7 through 9, they list a number of different types of people that God cares for. And we're going to come back to that. Verse 9, he frustrates the plans of the wicked, which means he does justice. In verse 10, he reigns forever. God is king. He is ultimate. So he's worthy of praise. He can offer salvation. He's eternal. He's the maker of all things. He does justice and he reigns forever. When we're thinking of this question, who am I and what should I do with our lives? We live as those who are members of God's kingdom, reflecting him. And part of what that means for us is this. Number one, we seek to praise Him and not ourselves. Now, this doesn't mean God's some egomaniac that needs us to, to give Him applause. No, but He is our source of life. He's our source of life. And we are made to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. And those things are intimately tied together. It's not, a lot of times we can think about we glorify God, but almost at the expense of ourselves. If I glorify God, it means I'm going to have to, um, I'm going to, have to go through the ringer. But no, the glory of God is us enjoying Him, finding Him as our source of life and our source of strength. So we praise Him and not ourselves, and not just in words, not just singing, but praise by living a life founded on Him. And drawing upon his strength and who he is. And that's exactly what we were made to do. Another thing we do is we find our salvation from him 
and not in ourselves or anybody else. So if God is who he says he is, and he is, then we stop trying to find salvation or justification or vindication in front of other people or him by anything we do or anything anybody else does. It means we take him at his word. His word is ultimate. And so his verdict matters more about how I feel about myself or anybody else feels about me. And I stop looking for salvation or ultimate validation from anybody else, including my own heart. What else? We trust in his purposes above our own. Even if we are the most intelligent person in this world, we are limited. There are so many things that we are ignorant of. And I don't mean the, that crass ignorance that's like, Whoa. I mean we just don't know things. And that's not a sin. It's not morally wrong to not know stuff. <laughs> um, but we don't. Even if we've studied for decades and decades and we've chased after knowledge, we're so limited in our understanding of how things work. There's so many mysteries to us, but not to God. And that's why we can entrust ourselves to His purposes and not our own, because he understands how all things work together. And finally, we value what he values. And that is the starting point of how we answer this question. How should I live? What should I do with my life? Not specific details of like turn left at the light, take a right at the stop sign. Like, not that. God engaging with us to show us his glory and his beauty that our hearts may be awed at what we see. And then we see him and we long to copy him. We see what he cares about, what makes his heart beat, what moves him. And that becomes what moves us. And that's where we're going next. What does he value? What does God value? What kind of king is he? I've talked about him reigning. Well, verses 7 through 9 are exactly that. They are showing us a peek into God's heart, in a sense. He who is eternal, he who is worthy of praise, who does justice, he who knows all things and, 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 and dwells in wisdom, what does he do? This might sound weird. God takes sides. God takes sides. That's what we see in verses 7 through 9. He doesn't remain a neutral bystander in the brokenness of this world. God takes sides. That's what this list is of people. So look, it says God upholds the cause of the oppressed. I talked about this a couple weeks ago. The oppressed are almost like a category of people in the Old Testament. It's folks that have been specifically targeted and used, mostly poor folks that have been used by the wealthy to make profit off their back. They've been the victim of traps laid or, or stuff set up that is meant to extract from them uh, 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 resources and, and, and wealth. They've been used and taken advantage of. And sometimes, a lot of times in this world, those folks cannot find justice. They can't find justice in the courts. We know so many situations where like an employee has been wronged by an employer and they can't find any relief. Or they have to, for years and years, chase after something. 
Sometimes they can't find justice in the courts. And that's what this meaning has here. It's, it's specifically using words about God upholding the cause of the oppressed. In Hebrew, it's literally, He does justice for the oppressed. The idea is that if they can't find a good lawyer, if they can't find justice in the courtroom, God is on their side. He's the righteous judge who sides with those who have been abused and wronged. Which should be a terrifying thing for those who wrong people. Most of the folks that go out of their way to use and degrade people, who take advantage of others in this world, most of those folks think they can get away with it if they're just sly enough, if they're smart enough to know how to work the mechanism. They can get away with it. If they pay the lawyers enough money, they can get away with it. They don't have to answer for what they've done. But this right here is a terrifying thing because maybe they can use their power to cover up here for a time. Maybe they think no one truly knows what they've done, but God knows. And He is on the side of the oppressed and the abused. What else does God care about? God gives food to the hungry. Hunger in our world is often a sign that our society is profoundly wrong. We have so much abundance, really, in food. And if you've ever worked in, like, restaurants, if you ever worked in a restaurant, you know at the end of the day, and almost by regulation, like you can't do anything else about it, you're tossing food into a dumpster. When there are people probably nearby the restaurant who are hungry, that is a profound wrong. Now, I don't know how to address it directly. I'm not advocating for some policy decision to happen at a political level. But it's a sign that something has gone wrong in this human community that we live in. Yet, what happens here? God does not side with those who hoard while others are in need. God sides with the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. It says, now we think prisoner, we think of somebody in jail, and it, it means that for sure. But a prisoner is anybody that's bound and not free. And that includes, includes victims of sex trafficking. That includes those who have uh, experienced slavery. God is not unconcerned with those who are kept bound by others. What else? God gives sight to the blind. I think the blind stand here for all who have disabilities that... Uh, make their life in our world difficult. Because our, our, our world is made for the able-bodied. Um, it's not made for people who have uh, a different kind of... It's not made for the blind, the, the deaf. I was uh, listening to a podcast yesterday, and it was, they was interviewing a, a, a man who has a degenerative eyesight uh, issue. And so he's progressively losing his vision. And he's talking about going from someone who had full sight at like 15 to somebody who, by the time he hits middle age, which is only a couple years from now, he'll be blind. And he was talking about how profound it was for him to experience the world as someone who's losing their sight and how difficult it is to do just basic things. That's because our world is not set up. With those who are blind in mind. They're an afterthought at best. But the promise here is that God does not hand those who are disabled over to their disability 
or to shame about that disability. For those who come to Jesus by faith, every single disability has an end date. It has an end date. What else does it say? The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. In case we've missed the point of the last few statements, God says it here clearly. He lifts up those who are bowed down. It doesn't say they've been, they've been made to bow down, but maybe they have, as we've spoken about. The implication is that the, the folks here include those who have been knocked down by others. The Lord watches over the foreigner, the stranger, the person who doesn't belong. God's eyes turn toward them. He sustains the fatherless and the widow. It's often true today, but it was certainly true in the ancient world. The orphan or the widow were people that were probably the most vulnerable in society. They had no civil rights. They could not vote. They could not bring a case to court. They could not get the ear of the powerful. If the father or the, or the husband of a family passed away, it was often automatic poverty and homelessness. Yet we see here that this is who God sustains, and he frustrates the ways of the wicked. What I'm saying is God takes sides. This is what he values. These are the people that he values. He is not like so many leaders that can be bought off. He is not like uh, so many leaders that try to get powerful people in their corner. God takes sides, and he sides with the poor, the oppressed, the hungry, the forgotten, the stranger. He's not a neutral bystander. He takes sides. And the people of our world must know this. God will not stand idly by. Now, I just walked through all of that, and I get it. Psalm 146 can feel like a bunch of campaign promises that are too good to be true. Because we've seen the ads. We've got them in the mail before. So-and-so candidate. They uphold the cause of the oppressed. So-and-so candidate. They give food to the hungry. They set prisoners free. It almost sounds exactly like Psalm 146. So how can God be trusted? Because a lot of people have words. Well, God can be trusted here that this is what he values because he hasn't just said words. No, actually, in the, in, in, in the language of uh, the Gospel of John chapter 1, God's word, his words, have put on flesh. His words, in a sense, become flesh in Jesus. They become embodied. He puts his money where his mouth is, and we see that in Jesus Christ. When God comes to this world, he doesn't come lauded with glory and honor. He is not recognized as who he is. No, he comes and he deserves all honor and praise, but what does he face? Rejection, mockery, disdain. He was picked on for, for how he looked. He was picked on from where he, from, where he was from. He was picked on because of his accent. It's all there in the Gospels. And that's not even getting to the direct opposition he later faced. The arrest, the un he was a prisoner, unjustly. He was beaten and forgotten and crucified and tossed away. He became all these things, in a sense. But in that happening, God made a way of freedom for us. Because maybe feeling like you are oppressed, or you're hungry, or you're a prisoner, or you're disabled, you're bowed down, you're a stranger, maybe that feels like a shameful thing, something that brings shame to you. But do you know who has stood in that exact same spot and stands with, those who, with us who face these things? God. 
This is what he values. And the proof is that when he came to this earth, he came poor, hungry, a prisoner, bowed down. And in doing that, he speaks a better word to those of us who have faced these things. That God's grace for us is stronger than sin, our sin and the sins of others against us. It's stronger in his resurrection than even the finality of death. So God values the poor. God takes sides. That leads me to my next section, valuing what God values. Valuing what God values. So let's go back to our question from the beginning. What should we do with our lives? What is God's will for us, for me? Well, like I said, we rarely get a direct answer to that question. But we get this snapshot here of our God and a call, an invitation to be enlivened by His Holy Spirit to become like Him. We rest upon Him by faith, resting in who He says we are, what we talked about earlier, justification. And so I don't need vindication from anybody else. I don't need accolades. I don't need to be told, like, you're righteous, because I'm righteous by faith. That's already taken care of. The most important thing about me, I'm righteous in God's sight, period. It's done. I don't have to hustle for that anymore. And if that's taken care of, then I am invited to become a person that values what he values. We confessed it about sanctification. It's God progressively working on our hearts. He renews us in all of who we are to become like him and to value what he values. And so we, like Jesus, can stand with and we can uphold the cause of those who are abused and oppressed. This can be the beating heart of who we are in our lives. We can give food to the hungry. We can seek the good of those who are prisoners. We can seek the good of those who are blind. We can seek the good of the fatherless and the widow. Our ultimate goal in this life should not be building wealth or climbing a ladder of success. I know that's usually seen as the, like, the, the ideal picture of a life well lived, you accumulate wealth and you can pass it on to your kids and they're safe and they're good and you're checking the 401k balance. And I'm not saying a 401k is bad. They're good. Saving money is a great idea for the future so you don't have to work your whole life. I'm, so don't hear me say that. I'm not saying go cash it out and pay the 40% tax penalty and don't do that. Or maybe do that. I don't know. But that's not an ultimate goal. It can't be. It may include you building wealth. It may include what looks like a ladder of success, but any wealth, any wealth given to us, any position we get in our lives are really just resources given to our hands to value what God values. So the resources that we receive, the positions, the places that God puts us, they're not things just given to us for us to enjoy. They're places of calling for us to value what God values wherever we are. To live like Jesus. Not because we're trying to earn anything, but because we are given all that we need by faith. Our God reigns, and He is king over a kingdom that will never end. It is a kingdom where the last are first and the first are made last. It is as Jesus said in Luke 4, which we read, the call to worship. This was his first sermon, preaching in his hometown. What is the Messiah going to be about? The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has set, 
sent me to proclaim freedom to prisoners and recovery of sight to blind, to set the oppressed free, and to declare the year of the Lord's favor. So let's hear Jesus with ears of faith this morning and be empowered by His Holy Spirit to follow Him in declaring this good news to the world, good news for the poor, the forgotten, the downtrodden, good news for everyone that is forgotten and left behind, that they are seen and valued by Jesus. If you're weighed down by sin this morning, come to Him and find forgiveness. Find grace, not condemnation. If you feel overlooked and forgotten, know that He sees you. Everyone else in your life may be indifferent to you and what's happening to you, but God is not. And let's join together and live in this world together as people who value what Jesus values and love what He loves. Let's praise Him not just in words and songs, but with actions. Let's live sacrificially even for the glory of God and the good of others and watch in front of our eyes, what God does to transform our hearts, our homes, our neighborhoods, and our world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you don't just give us a list of stuff to do. That would be handy. But you invite us to know you, to see you. You call upon our hearts and awaken us from spiritual death to life that we may gaze at your beauty and find our hearts ravished and changed. That we may love you and be turned into people who live and act and look like you. So I pray that you would continue this work by your Holy Spirit. That we would not trust in ourselves and our own motivations and our own power. But that we would look to you to have our hearts awed over and over again. That we would see what you value and in turn value it because we are empowered by your Spirit. And I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.